0: Turning your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter three, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're going to we're going to be looking at two um, passages of Scripture kind of side by side. And so, if you want to hold your hand in both, um, Exodus three and Matthew twenty eight is where we're going to be. We've been walking through this series um, on the marks of a disciple. And so we talked the first two weeks about a passion for Jesus. We talked the second two weeks about the knowledge of the Scriptures. And we just finished up talking the last two weeks about the importance of what it looks like to live in community. And, and if, you, if you hold the five marks of a disciple up, which we're going to get into the last two today and, and for the next three weeks, we're going to finish the series right before Thanksgiving. Um, but if you, if, you, if, you hold these, if you hold these last two up, the first three are kind of the—and and, and they're all challenging— right? And we all have challenges with, with each of them in our own way. But the first three are kind of the easier ones, all right? Like, like it kind of makes sense that if I'm going to be a Christian, I ought to have a passion for Jesus, right? And so we evaluate ourselves on that passion scale and, and so on and so forth. And if I'm going to have a passion for Jesus, I ought to know His Word, right? I ought to know the Word of God. and if, and, and, then, and then the importance of community. I get, you know, I get church. I get the importance of community. No matter where I stand with it, it kind of makes sense to me. But now we get to the kind of this tough stuff where we're, we're going to have to sacrifice a little bit. Because this marker, and we're going to talk about today and next week, is a heart for the lost. A heart for those that don't know Christ. A heart for people that we rub elbows with day in and day out, where their eternal destination may not be the same as ours. Or let's hit a little bit closer to home. Let's just go there right off the bat and let's get uncomfortable and become uncomfortable with being uncomfortable this morning, which kind of goes hand in hand with a heart for the lost. What about the people you sit right next to Sunday after Sunday that may not have the same eternal destination as you? That's what we're going to talk about. Do we have a heart for that? Do we have a heart for those people? Do we have a heart for the people that we do church with, that we do life with, that we do work with, that we do? things with that don't know Christ the cool thing about it is we all have experiences right we all have experiences that we want to share with other people for example I told you we were going to talk a little bit more about it Russ and Ian and I board a flight Tuesday afternoon and go down to Dallas I would have given anything for you guys to see the three of us on that Southwest flight sitting next to each other it was unbelievable. I got a picture. I should have put it up here to show everybody. But, um, you know, Southwest, you have to pick your own seats. And Ian drew the short Shaw, so he sat in the middle of Russ and I all the way from here to Dallas. It was amazing. It was incredible. We got close. Um, I would have loved to experience that. I would have loved for you to experience on Wednesday before the conference started, we went to a couple places. We had some fun. We went to AT&T Field. Anybody know what AT&T Field is? That's where the Cowboys lose. That's where the Cowboys lose. Often, And you know what's funny about it, um, we were able to find the end zone. I don't know why Dak Prescott has such a hard time finding the end zone, we spent a lot of time in the end zone, it was, it was unbelievable. We walked into the store at AT&T Stadium, and they had all these co- this cowboy, anybody cowboy fan in here? Oh, praise God, oh, one of you, okay, wow, man, um, there's one in every group, heart for the lost. Okay, um... No, but, but we walked into the, 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 the store, and there were four or five folks that were working up front, and, and I walked in, and I, was, I, I just decided I'm going to be that guy. You know, I just decided I'm going to be that guy. And I walked in, and I said, where's all the Patriot stuff? And, and one of the guys that was working in the store, he walked over to the trash can. He lifted the lid, and he pointed right in the trash can. And then, while I was equally offended, I was so proud of him, like... Like, it was one of those moments I couldn't be mad, like I couldn't be upset. I-, I loved it, you know, because I was being that guy and he was answering the call. And I wish you could have seen the, that, that interaction and that fun that we had there. Uh, we had a little uh, field goal kicking contest, myself, Russ, and Ian, and um, I'll be happy to report that I won that. I kicked a 35-yard field goal in Dallas Stadium, that was fun. That was fun. These guys couldn't, anyway. But um, but you know, I I wish you could have seen that because then the three times we tried to record it, I missed the field goal. So I wish you could have seen the one I made. Um, and, you know, but it was we had a lot of fun. I wish I, I wish you could have been with us. Um, when we ate at this little taco place called Torches. Has anybody ever been to Dallas, Texas, and eaten a torch? It'll change your life. Um, uh, so so I wish you could have been with us there. That was great. But now that's to the serious stuff. I wish you could have been with us Thursday night when we listened to a guy by the name of Mike Jordahl speak on diversity in the church. Not in the church necessarily, diversity in the kingdom of God. And eight things that he's learned. Unbelievable message. I wish you could have experienced it. I wish you could have experienced um, Friday morning when this guy by the name of Marvin Campbell just flat preached the word of God. It was the last service that we had together and then We went to the airport, and Russ and Ian and I were just kind of like speechless, which that's a miracle in itself. Um, But we were just kind of speechless after what we had heard from... Uh, a guy by the name of Marvin Campbell about discipleship and disciple-making within the church. I wish you could have experienced that with me, you know? And, and we've all gone on trips. We've all been in churches. We've all been in different places and, and, and seen different things, right? And we, and we come back and we say, oh, I wish you could have experienced this. I wish you could have done that. I wish you could have seen this. It was awesome. It was amazing, you know? And, and, and that, that is what I kind of want us to talk about today because we all have experiences that we want to share with other people but my fear with that is that when we come and we fast forward to the church that we don't fully grasp our calling to walk with people in a way where they experience the God that we experience. My fear in this is that we don't fully grasp our calling. It's kind of a heavy statement. We don't fully grasp our calling. To to share our experiences with others in in the way that we experience it. For example, we've all experienced God. Many of us have experienced God in real ways. I I I experienced God, and 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 when we talk about this thing, calling, right? Um, many many uh, people say that when you're starting to doubt yourself, when you're starting to doubt your calling, when you're having a bad day, go back to the place where you were called. I love going back to the place where I was called. Not necessarily physically, but mentally and emotionally and spiritually, I love going back to the place where I was called. I was at First Baptist Church, Orlando, Florida. I was standing there across the table from two Scots. One, one's named Scott Lynn Scott, the other's name's Scott Tauby, and I was doing ministry down in North Carolina and questioning what God had for me next. And, and I was just sharing with these guys, and I was, I was talking with them and saying, man, I'm, I'm going to be praying with you guys, I'm going to be praying for you guys. You're on the front lines of ministry up there in Maine. I could never do ministry in Maine. Don't ever say never to God. <laughs> this was about eight and a half years ago. And I remember Scott Taube looking back at me and saying, Travis, Eric Samuelson, the pastor down at the Rock Church, he says, I'm Maine's tallest pastor, and Scott is Maine's shortest pastor. So you can just imagine. But it was Scott Talby. He looked at me and said, I bet you'll be in Maine within the year. And I said, Don't tell my wife. And uh, he said, Seriously. And he prayed with me at that, at that moment. And sure enough, nine months later, January 15th, we moved to Maine and started pastoring a church. Even to this moment, I get goosebumps about the process in that nine months, sending my resume thinking, I'm the last person that ought to be their pastor. And then in in June, when I sent my questionnaire and the responses that I had with the search team, and then in August, in August, that moment that Kristen, my wife, prayed this prayer, God, drop it in our lap, and 30 minutes later, we get a phone call from the search committee, saying, well, if we had to rank you, you're number five. (laughs) That's exactly what he was thinking. He said, how do you feel about that? I said, well, my wife just prayed and asked God to drop it in our lap, and so I feel like he just told us that I'm to be your next pastor. So whatever process you guys need to do to figure that out, so be it. I wish you could have heard the crickets on the other end of that phone. (laughs) Because remember, this was a Southern Baptist church, and I'm talking about hearing from God. Oh, 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 back up. Um, That was August. Two and a half, two and a half months later, same guy called me back and said, the top four are gone, number six isn't interested anymore, you're basically all we have. And so either we're going with you or we're going to have to drop back and figure out what we're doing. Are you still interested? I said, do you remember our phone conversation in August? Man, I just get excited remembering that, right? I get excited going back to my experience when I experienced God, when I saw God. But again, my fear is that we don't fully grasp our responsibility to share that experience with people that don't know Him. And that's what I want us to talk about today. I want us to talk about our call. Let's deal with that word for just a minute call, because we're not talking about the phone call. We're not talking about, you know, we're not, we're not talking about those things. And I think a lot of people hear about this thing called a, a call of God or a call from God. And they're saying, well, what, what does that look like? He's never, you know, he's never called my phone. He's never, you know, hit me up or, or whatever. You know, a calling is an appointment. A calling is an appointment. And when I was called by God back in 2010 to come to Maine to serve the, the people of, of Maine, to serve you, to be at this church, to I mean, I, I could have no idea back then that Summit would ever exist. I could have no idea back then that I would even have two more kids at this point. I, you know, I just had no idea back then what that looked like. But I was appointed to this church, to this place, for such a time as this, back then when I go back to that I get excited and the reality is that we have all been appointed to a calling of God in our lives and we talk about that we talk about that well yeah I have a call of God on my life I have a call of God on my life and it's this and it's that but do we live like it I don't want to talk about a heart for the lost this morning as some concept as something that we hope to grasp I want to talk about a heart for the lost this morning in a way that God breaks our hearts for his kingdom that God would break our hearts for a people that don't know Him. That don't know Him. And so if you look at Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to back up just a little bit. Um, I want us to look at this, this full picture. It's going to be familiar to some of you. We're going to talk about the burning bush, and we're going to get to verses 9 through um, the end of the chapter. But I want to back up and look at verses 1 through 8 to give us the context. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. Verse 3, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. I want you to see something. I want you to see something. Moses turned aside and gave the bush his full attention. You see that? You see that? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside, God called to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Pause just a moment. Isn't it awesome to know that we serve a God that knows us? that knows our sufferings, that knows the cry of our heart. He's not out of tune with those things. He says to Moses, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, per- the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Christmas lights, and the Jebusites. We see here in these first eight verses that first, we see a couple things, right? We see the burning bush experience begin, right? When when God appointed Moses out of a burning bush to go and do a work. Now, what was Moses doing? Minding his own business. He was shepherding the flock. He was being faithful and obedient to what God had given him. See, some, some of us want a call, but we're not being faithful with what God had given us. I didn't say that first service. Some of us want to call of God to something else, to something next, but we're not being faithful to the, th- the, to, to the call that he's already given us. Be faithful with what you have before he'll go, That does preach. And so we see, right, we see that God cared. We see that God cared about these Israelites who were in suffering, who were in captivity, who were in bondage. Verse 9, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. This should be on your screen. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Again, he's in tune with their suffering. Come and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so Exodus records God's calling of Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. Jesus also calls us to go and lead his children out of bondage today if you go to matthew chapter 28 18 through 20 go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit teaching them to obey everything i've commanded you and lo i'm with you always even to the ends of the age and if you look at the if you look at these callings side by side we're, i want us to notice some things today not a physical slavery that we're, that we're called to lead people out of today, but a slavery to sin. Even though we may not see a burning bush, this call is still individual for every one of us this morning. If you have breath in your lungs, guess what? There's a call of God on your life. There's a call of God on my life. There's a call of God on your life. It's true that some people are called to work full-time in ministry, but all of us have a responsibility to do their part in witnessing and sharing the good news of Jesus to those around us. And here's the reality. God's given you favor with a group of people that he's not given me favor with. God's given me a, group, uh, a favor with a group of people that he's not giving you favor with. I have no favor with people at Yodel. I have no favor with people at Wex. I have no favor with people in the Scarborough school department or um VNA or maybe a little bit with VNA or um or 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 other folks USM I don't have a platform necessarily to speak into those lives at those places but most of you do you do you do And so what does it look like for us to be faithful with the place where God has placed us? You are called to go into your world and make disciples, followers of Jesus. But here's the deal. We make excuses, don't we? We're in good company. Moses answered God with four excuses as to why he couldn't go and do what God called him to do through the burning bush. Which, I mean, just think about that. How incredible is a burning bush experience? How incredible is it that Moses is walking along being faithful to the flock that God had appointed him to? He's he's being faithful with the work that God had led him to up until this point. And then he sees this burning bush. God talks to him through this burning bush. And then Moses' response is four excuses as to why he can't go. That just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Right? Right? I see a burning bush and something starts talking to me, well, let's not go there. But God gave an answer for each of Moses' excuses, leaving him with no excuse. So I want us to look at these four excuses, but I want us to do something a little bit different that I'll show you as we go. Moses' first excuse, look at Chapter 3, verse 11 of Exodus. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses is saying, excuse number one, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. You want to know the fascinating thing about it? Moses said that he couldn't fulfill God's call for him because he was nobody. While he had once been a prince, he was now just an insignificant shepherd living out in the desert. Who was he to give someone to go to someone so powerful and prestigious like Pharaoh, the ruler of what was then the world's greatest and most powerful nation? God's response: Look at verse twelve. He said, "But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." I think it's important to note that God didn't deny Moses any significance. You see that God didn't deny that Moses was a nobody. He did, God didn't God didn't respond to Moses and say, "Moses, come on, give yourself a little more credit." Right? God didn't have to pet Moses. God didn't deny Moses' insignificance. He didn't question the fact that, compared with the greatness of Pharaoh, Moses was indeed a nobody. But God answered in that he would go with Moses. It didn't matter how insignificant Moses was, or more importantly, how powerful Pharaoh was, because the one who himself made this earth, the all-creator God, promised that he would go with Moses. We make the same excuse, don't we? Sometimes we have the same excuse. When God calls us to witness to somebody, we compare ourselves with that person and say, I'm nobody compared to them. They're my boss. They're educated. They're smart. They're powerful. I'm not. And just like Moses, we sometimes say, I can't fulfill God's call for me because I'm a nobody. One of the, one of the, one of the more impactful um, things that I'll remember from this series going forward is seven weeks ago when we introduced this series and Russ and I team-taught and Russ said everything that we're going to talk about for the next ten weeks, you don't need a seminary degree for. Because so many of us talk ourselves out of the call of God on our lives because lack of training. Lack of framed pieces of paper. Lack of experience. Lack of this, lack of that. But God doesn't call the equipped; He equips the called. Doesn't matter how insignificant. So even though we make that excuse, right? Jesus' answer, Matthew twenty-eight twenty, going to all that nations right baptizing uh, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the father and son the holy spirit teaching them to obey everything i've commanded you and notice jesus gives us the same the same response that god gave moses back in exodus and i'm with you always even to the ends of the age i am with you always always the same response that God gave Moses, Jesus gives to us in our calling to the fact that we're nobody. Number two, Moses looked back at God in verse 13 and said, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to him? Moses' excuse, I have no authority. I have no authority. Um, Moses' second excuse was that he had no authority to go. In that time, a name was more significant than it is today. The name included the entire character and authority of a person in this time. So when Moses says that they will ask what is his name, his fear is that they will ask in whose authority is he coming. And of all the excuses Moses had, this one seems to be most legitimate on the surface. Because if you look back in Exodus chapter 2, he had already tried to help his people in his own strength. And their response, Exodus 2, 14, who made you ruler and judge over us? So Moses was saying that they would have the same issue that they had before. He had already experienced this. God, I've already done that. I've been there, done that. Didn't you see the result? Let me clue you in. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. What a... That's powerful. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Verse 16, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Once again, God didn't challenge or press into Moses' thought that in himself, he didn't have the authority to lead his people. In fact, that was the problem before. Moses had done it on his own authority. But instead, God tells him that he's going under the authority of God himself. He says, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. If they had any question to who this God is, he goes on to clarify that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he was sending Moses. He was to go under the authority of God. He was to go under the authority of God. Sometimes we have the same excuse. People will think, oh, man, who is this wacko, right? Arrogant to think that they only have one truth. I mean, you think about that right there. That takes us out of a lot of conversations today. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus' answer. Once again, he gives the same answer to this excuse that God gave to Moses. Moses. Only we have to go to Mark 16, 17, which is the same context of the Great Commission that we find in Matthew 28. Jesus says, Mark 16, 17, in my name they will believe. Once again, wrapped up in the statement, in my name is in my authority and in my power. Jesus promises us that when we witness, when we share our faith, we go not in our own strength and authority, but in his strength and authority. We'll get the third excuse. We're going to skip down. Go to chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. His next excuse is that they won't believe me. Even after he told the people that God had sent him, they wouldn't believe him. He thought maybe he would think, or maybe they would think that he'd either made it up, or that he was crazy, or that he was out there. Maybe they would think he was, he, Moses was seeing things. The story he thought would be a little hard for the people to swallow, because it involved taking a big risk. It involved taking a big risk. I was sitting with a guy the other night. Um, we were getting to know each other at the conference. It was Wednesday night, we had first session, and they were giving us chances to, to get to know each other. And, 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 and you know, we were, we were talking and all of that. And this, this older gentleman who pastors a church down in Dallas um, he, he said it was like 10, 12 miles outside of the city of Dallas. He looked at me and he said, gentlemen, I was looking at me and Ian and Russ, and gentlemen, here's what you need to do. You need to take some big risks. In the most spiritual way I could, I laughed at him. I said, buddy, I'm all risked out. Let me tell you what we've done in the last couple of years. so we talked about five ten minutes later he wanted to know all about you and how all this happened and how many people we had lost and how many people you know all this stuff he wanted to know the story of summit right so we gave him the 40,000 foot view of the last year and a half or so of our history as a church and he looked at me again at the end of the conversation gentlemen you need to get further out on that limb and take some risks so I spit in his face and I just got out of there <laughs> Say you don't know what you're talking about you don't know what you're talking about it involves taking a big risks God's answer to Moses it's a little long but I want us to read verses two through nine he said well we'll, we'll skip around just follow me here we go Dave you ready the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. I'm out. <laughs> at that point. Just, just so we're at full disclosure, honesty, vulnerability this morning from this pulpit. I'm out at that point. So he put it in his hand and caught it. Moses' faith is bigger than mine. Shocker. And it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord God, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So when he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Verse 8, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. And that water you take from the Nile shall become blood on the dry ground. So God's response, God's response to Moses saying, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to believe me. Again, God did not deny Moses' claim that the people wouldn't believe his story because God knows that people doubt. Instead, he promises that he will convince the people. Think about this in other places in Scripture. Think about the life of Jonah, right? God calls Jonah. Jonah flees in the opposite direction. God goes to uh, uh, where God had called him to uh, Jonah goes to where God had called him to go. He speaks the word of God. The whole city repents and turns so much so that Moses gets frustrated in chapter 4 of Jonah. Very fascinating story. One of my favorites is Ezekiel, chapter 2 and 3. When, uh, when, when Ezekiel is called, Ezekiel gets called to a stubborn nation. I'm glad things have shifted. <clears throat> but Ezekiel's call was to a stubborn nation. And in that, God tells Ezekiel, speak the words that I give you to speak. And whether they hear you and turn or whether they ignore you, they will know that a prophet's been among them. What's God saying in response to Moses' excuse? It's not up to you, it's up to me. What is up to you is your faithfulness to share. What's up to me is their decision. You're not responsible for their response. You're responsible for your faithfulness. You may, you may get told no a thousand times, but then that one was worth all the faithfulness. God is, God is saying to Moses, it's not up to you. It's up to me. Our excuse is We also often think that people won't believe our message. We've already mentioned this a little bit, especially today. Many people deny our basic beliefs. Many people even think that we're crazy to believe what we do. More and more, the world is coming to the place where they question every word of truth that we try to give them. It's reality. So sometimes it's easy to give in to the temptation not to witness, because we just kind of roll our eyes and sit back and say, They're not going to believe it anyway, but at least I'm good. Jesus' answer. Jesus, again, didn't deny that people wouldn't believe us. In fact, he already knew that people wouldn't believe our words, and so he gave provision for it. Verse 10 of Exodus chapter 4, we see Moses' fourth excuse. Moses said to the Lord, "Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Moses' fourth excuse, I'm incapable. I'm incapable. I'm incapable of doing what you've called me to do. I'm not able to physically do what you've called me to do. This was the specific specific excuse here because he had a speech impediment. And here God was, telling me to, God was telling Moses right, to go and speak to the powerful Pharaoh, but yet he was unable to speak properly, which would make him seem foolish. And in true human fashion, Moses felt the need to remind God that he was physically incapable of doing what God had asked him and appointed him and commanded him to do. Look at verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, I just think this is awesome. Who has made man's mouth? I mean, Moses felt the need to remind God, hey, hey, God, remember me? I'm the one with the speech impediment. God's response. Who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, I, I paraphrase, stop with the excuses and go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God, of course, didn't deny Moses' speech problem, but instead he reminded Moses that he was the one who had created Moses' mouth. We sometimes feel like we're incapable. Like Moses, we don't know what to say. We don't know how to say it. I loved um, debriefing with Russ and Ian because there were a few breakout sessions that we could choose from at our conference. And one that Russ went to was disciple making in the next generations or for generations or something like that. And he said essentially it was how in the world do you share the gospel to millennials? That was kind of his subtitle. Because I is one, I can talk about him. Man, it's taken me a long time to admit that. But one of the things that was most impactful for us and I wasn't even in the, in the breakout session but when I heard it, it cut me to the heart was that if we're going to disciple people that are younger than us, we've got to know that people care way more about our scars first than our scriptures. The direct quote was, show me your scars before you show me your scriptures. It's about posture. If we walk into a discipleship relationship, and I've heard of this happening, right, someone takes the teacher role, grabs the whiteboard, you sit right there, we're gonna talk for the next little bit, and this is what this is gonna look like, and this is what this is gonna look like, and this is what it's gonna look like, and never once talking about the effect of the scripture on their heart and their life through their brokenness. That posture, number one, exemplifies a lack of humility and vulnerability but instead it's got to be modeled. And so doesn't that discipleship relationship, doesn't that relationship in general take discipleship out of it for a moment, look differently if you walk in and say, let me tell you about a story when I was 22 years old and God broke my heart. Everything that I held near and dear to me, He took right out from under me. And let me tell you how He restored it. Let me tell you how He restored me. Let me tell you how He's used that for His glory. Let 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 me tell you the story. See, I believe the most powerful witnessing tool we have is not the Roman road, not the faith model. I mean, all those things are valuable, and especially if you go on mission trips in other countries and all you've got is five minutes to share the gospel, boom, man, use one of those tools. But the most powerful witnessing tool, evangelism tool, you own is your story. Your story. That... God has given you. That God has given you. Jesus promises that He will make provision for our incapabilities. Matthew 10, 18-20, Jesus told His disciples that in their kingdom work, they would be brought before many people, many important people, kings and rulers, but they weren't to worry about what they would say in those times because His Spirit would speak through them. Jesus promised them and promises us that when we find ourselves in a situation we aren't capable of handling, we don't have to worry because He'll make provision for our incapabilities. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God will overcome whatever incapabilities you have, whatever incapabilities I have, and enable you to fulfill, enable me to fulfill God's call in our lives. pretty powerful isn't it to look at the excuses of Moses and to compare them with the great commission and see that God responds Jesus responds in the same way to us as God responded to Moses as we kind of land the plane this morning I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9 with me I want us to look at the life of Paul <clears throat> if you look at Acts chapter 9 we preached on this back in August I think the the story of Acts and his uh, the story of Paul and his conversion But I want us to see for application this morning Paul's heart for the lost that we find in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. He says here, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I picture Paul here crying out to God in front of the, through this letter to the church at Rome, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Verse 4, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I want you to see three things about Paul's heart for the lost. Number one, Paul's heart for the lost stems from his relationship with Jesus. Paul's heart for the lost came from his relationship with Christ. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. We will only ever possess a heart for the lost if we, like Paul, have been brought into a relationship with Jesus. We will only ever possess a heart for the lost if we, like Paul, have been brought into a relationship with Jesus. I want to show you something. This cup... It's full of air. Can you help me out? Just, just hold it. You don't have to stand up if you don't want to. Just okay. You can stand up. This cup's full of air, right? Yes. Yep. Some of you are really unsure about that. <laughs> this cup is full of air. How are we going to get the air out of this cup? We're going to shake it and get the that, that, that going to get the air out of it? No, we got to fill it with something else, right? We're going to fill it with water. You are welcome. You can have that. Really? It's only when we poured something else out into it did it remove the air, right? But here's how so many of us try to treat the call of the heart for the lost. I got to get my stuff together. I got to do this i got to do that. i got to shake all the air out of this cup before I can fill myself with the things of God to go and share with people that don't know Him. And when I hear that, it breaks my heart. Because the only way, and it's natural, for us to be filled with a passion from Christ under the power of the Holy Spirit for those that don't know Him is to fill ourselves with more of Him, and then it comes, and then it comes. And, it comes, and it comes, and it comes, and it comes, and it just keeps coming. And there's fruit, and there's fruit, and there's fruit. I was Friday night. I was walking through the Baltimore airport, and you know who I wanted to talk to? Absolutely no one. I had peopled all week long. I had roomed with Pastor Ian. I was done with people. And as I'm walking through the airport, this lady from behind me says, oh, it is so refreshing to see someone carry a Bible around in their backpack. Because I have my Bible in the outer pouch of my backpack. And I said to myself, okay, God, really? Here we go. And I turned around, and I plastered the best smile I could find and said, oh, that's, you know, and we had a conversation. You know what she does? Man, it was awesome. She builds houses for 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 women who are being trafficked in every state in our country. And I'm like, oh man, that's awesome. We have a ministry to fight trafficking. We're trying to do that. And she's like, oh great. I'm like, I'm going to put you in touch with this lady. Her name's Cindy. And this is going to be awesome. And it was a total God appointment. And it was awesome. And I left there and I was, high on Jesus again I'm like man this is just this is just awesome God thank you for putting me in that place but it would have been much easier much more convenient for me to just keep walking and filling with air but because that air is being replaced that was super encouraging Paul's passion for the lost Paul's heart for the lost came from his relationship with Jesus number two Paul's heart for the lost is communicated. It's told. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul is saying that all he's about to share is the truth. He's not lying. The Bible shares with us that Romans 10, 17, just a chapter over, faith comes from hearing a message. Faith comes from hearing a message. Jesus commands us as his church, God's plan to save the world, to go into the world, and to preach the gospel. So number one, Paul's heart for the lost stems from his relationship with Jesus. Number two, Paul's heart for the lost is communicated. Number three, Paul's heart for the lost affected his whole being affected his whole being. Paul wants to express what he's experiencing in regard to his lost brothers, the people near and dear to his heart. His conscience is awakened by the Holy Spirit to the condition of his brothers lost without God. His own conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. He speaks the truth to them and the truth is that Paul had a deep love for his own people, the people of Israel, who have rejected Christ. My question for us this morning, how do you feel in your inner being about the lost around you today? How do you feel in your inner being about the lost around you today? James Hudson Taylor, in challenging English students during his time to be involved in China mission work, used to tell a story about Peter, his Chinese convert and disciple. On one of their sea journeys, Peter, who did not know how to swim, fell from the other side of the boat. Fortunately, there were fishermen nearby just to grab away from where Peter fell. Taylor shouted at the fishermen and asked them to help his dear friend. Hey, help my friend, he's drowning, he shouted. However, the fishermen didn't bother to do his call for help because they were busy loading their catch from the net to their boat. Taylor continued to yell. Stop what you're doing and help my friend. He's just a grab away. But the fishermen continued on their work until the last fish was loaded to the boat. Then they jumped and got Peter out of the water. They tried to revive him, but to no avail. Peter died of drowning. He could have been saved because he was just a grab away from the fishermen. Then Taylor asked the students and church members what they thought about these fishermen. Of course, the students responded some said they are bad, they're evil, they're selfish, they're uh, the unconcern about the salvation of a dying man. You know how Taylor responded? He said, I saw it differently. I think the fishermen are like most Christians today. Unconcerned about the plight of the sinners who are now just to grab away from them. The reason is that they're so busy with their work. See, evangelism is more than just the words we say, it's the lives we live. We communicate the power of the Holy Spirit by the way He shows up in our day-to-day lives. Without sacrifice, there can be no victory. I was sitting in my breakout Thursday. I'm not even even sure what my breakout was called anymore. These breakout sessions were two hours, and I positioned myself at a table with absolutely no one else. Because that's how I wanted it. I just wanted to learn, I wanted to take notes, I didn't want anybody else bumping my chair or anything or watching me nod off or, you know, whatever. Plus there was food and I wanted to make sure that I, you know, didn't have to be considered about anyone else eating the food, it was just all mine. It's real God honoring. But I remember in the start of this breakout session being totally offended. As this guy that doesn't even work in a church started to bash churches. In the first three minutes of his talk, he shouted out and got real passionate, kind of like I do sometimes. He walked to the front, in front of his podium, he was leaning over the edge of the stage, and he said, My problem with churches today is that they're so dysfunctional. I wanted to be like, Whoa, little navigator man. I think I could take you. And he talked, and he talked, and he talked about how 80% of pastors won't even be in ministry after five years because they're going to burn out, and they're going to do this, and they're going to do that. And And he said it again. He said, man, my problem with churches is they're so dysfunctional because they've created a machine. And I spent the next hour and 45 minutes picturing all the ways that I was going to ball this man up and just punt him at the Cowboy Stadium. Yeah. <laughs> but then I started thinking about these fishermen that I was planning to preach on today. and I started thinking about Summit. I started to think about my past church experiences and how it's true Churches are so dysfunctional because we care way more about things that don't matter than we do about the lost person sitting right next to us. Churches are dysfunctional because we care more about what's being communicated, what's not being communicated. Are we making our church budget? What songs are we doing today? Who's actually preaching today? What's this? Who's that? How are we doing this? How are we doing that? Than we are about the kingdom of God. And I was convicted, man. I was convicted. I was convicted of the critical spirit that I have towards church. Because when's the last time I've shared my faith? This guy said at every meeting that you have in your church, the first question you ought to ask is how'd you share your faith this past week? And I thought to myself, I don't want to ask that. That would change our conversations, wouldn't it? That would change your conversations, wouldn't it? If we stopped caring so much about the things that just don't matter for eternity and we started caring more about the kingdom of God and how big it's getting as a result of our faithfulness to Him and not our machine. And not our machine. So like we've done with the other three marks of a disciple the first week, we've ended with asking the question, on a scale of one to ten, how would you rate yourself? With the question of is how is your passion for the lost? 10 being I share my faith every moment I I just can't stop talking my cup is overflowing and there's no air left because it's all Jesus and 1 being I've never shared my faith and what would it take for us to get from a 1 to a 2 from a 3 to a 4 What would it look like for you this week to just share something that God's done in your life? What would that look like? What would it look like to find common ground with someone and to ask them how you can just pray for them? I mean, I heard a guy the other day say, I just really like to pray. And so I just go around and ask people, how can I pray for you? I, just, I, I tell them, I tell almost every server that I, that I eat at a restaurant. And I, I say, hey, listen, I just really like to pray. Is there any way I can pray for you today? He said, you'd be amazed at the conversations. And my response was, I can do that. I like to pray. I could ask people that question. That's pretty simple. I can do that. And then trust God with the rest. May we not be so wrapped up in the machine that we miss the heart of God for people that don't know Him. Let's pray.